0: So we are having to get our head around living with some level of risk, okay? Because this problem is not going away, and, and that's the sobering reality. And so it's just like getting on the interstate. You take a little bit of risk if you get on the interstate. And so you wear your seatbelt and who you are. Maybe you, maybe you feel really confident and you go down the fast lane, and maybe you maybe you only drive at certain times of the day when there's less traffic. But the reality is this COVID thing is not going away uh, right now. People are ready to do something with their life. We're going to have to make decisions under this, in this setting of risk. Uh, And we are not yet back to new normal.
1: Welcome to Intersection. I am Bobby Ratu, storyteller.
0: Bobby, I don't know if you allow it this way, but, you know, my family is far and away my greatest passion. And um, I'm a father of uh, three boys and we've got a a, a boy cousin that lives with us. So four boys at home, two boy dogs, uh, a wonderful wife. And I just love being a dad so much um, and really enjoy all the things we get to do in this community. Uh, So that would far away be my, my greatest passion.
1: Introduce yourself.
0: So my name is Ted Swan. I am a family physician in Clemson, South Carolina. I've been working in Clemson in that capacity for, I think, maybe 16 years. Uh, And for the last eight years, I've had my own practice. Uh, When I came to Clemson, I was really blessed to be able to work uh, with my mentor, uh, Dr. Bill Dukes, who had been an old-timey country doctor who had taken care of this community uh, for years. And while I was still green, uh, I got to, you know just kind of work under his um, you know, I just kind of felt like he always had his arm around me, but I got to learn from really one of the best. And so that was a real blessing. Uh, but uh, at the same time, um, he was also my mentor. and in many ways, as a physician, I wanted to emulate him. And as things have changed in healthcare, Uh, i was feeling a lot of pressure to be a doctor different than the doctor that i really was so attracted to being and so with his blessing uh, several years ago um, i decided to open up my own practice essentially for the autonomy to practice medicine the way uh, i really want to
1: how did this and i call it the COVID diagram that you have been posting on facebook talk about the genesis of that real quick and then talk about what it is and why did you do this for your community, so to speak?
0: So this whole time has just been, it's been a, it's been a journey. Um, and in the beginning, um, you know, we just, we just did not know what was coming. Uh, and there was so much uncertainty and, in and watching it, Kind of work its way towards the United States was really unnerving. And so then when we started seeing news reports uh, through Twitter or even on the national news about what was happening in Italy, it was just horrifying. Some of the severity of illness, the over the just all of the sudden healthcare systems being overwhelmed you know, there were reports of physicians having to choose between who they gave a chance to on a ventilator because they didn't have machines. That really disturbed me. Um, and as being a solo doctor, you know, I don't have anybody to fall back on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is, it was on me to prepare myself uh, to, to help my patients. Um, you'll remember that there was this PPE crisis, um, and so not being part of a big healthcare system, um, I had to fend for myself, uh, and that was a that was really being scrappy uh, and, and getting all that. But there was the bottom line is we had so much uncertainty. We did not have PPE. There was no the no vaccine, no treatment, uh, no really good protocols. Uh, we didn't have the ability to test. Uh, so we didn't have the ability to, to know who was sick, um, and then when when we did get testing, uh, there was, we ran out of reagents to do the test, and it was it was just kind of chaos. But it was um, ruled by uncertainty, mm. and so as I mentioned in some of those writings early on, you know, when a if there's a a beast that is charging you. And you do not know what that is. You got to have a defensive position, and and you kind of got to run and get settled until you can figure figure this thing out. So in the beginning, we ran uh, and and tried to um, start learning about it. So here we are, many months down the road, and a lot of those early problems, um, we've made a lot of progress with them. So. PPE. Really, just recently, are we caught up with that? And I think most places would say they have they have supply um, management of the sickest patients. Um, enough people have been doing it to figure it out. And um, so, people who are critically ill are doing better than they were doing with hospitalization protocols. Uh, one of the remarkable things about this virus is how um, how different, it impacts different people. And so, you know, we look at, at children uh, and how the virus can impact them. And we look at grandparents uh, and what happens to them. And it is, it is amazing, you know, how threatening this virus is for the elderly population. And it, it's just stunning that the same virus that gives my son a runny nose could kill uh, the next door neighbor who's 80 years old. And uh, it's just, that, that's so remarkable. However, we've learned these things. We've learned risk um, and I kind of manifest in in two ways. Um, One is it's a threat to my personal health. Um, But also if I get sick, I have the ability to impact my community if I if I spread it. So when I think about it, I think about those two different ways. And so as um, somebody who's under 50, um, the odds of me dying uh, from the virus, if I was to get it, are really low. Um, And particularly I'm under 50 and I don't have other risk factors.
1: Um, Which me, I'm under 50, but I've had asthma since I was a little child. And so my risk factor goes up to some threshold, you know, as we, my family is very cautious about it because they know if anybody in my circle, my mom, you know, anybody in that circle gets it and I get it, I might react differently and we don't know because I'm asthmatic, you know, so good point. Right.
0: So, so, you know, early on we, we had, we were uncertain. We've learned a lot now, and one of the things, one of the very important things, is we've learned who's at risk for what, hmm. uh, and of course, death is the thing that probably matters the most, and then any long-term effect of the illness also matters a lot. Um, and we've also learned what, how, how to how to prevent spread. Those are two really critical things. We know who's at different levels of risks, and we know the type of interventions that break the chains of of contagion and so those two pieces of those two types of information can inform us in a way that we previously were not informed and so in my mind uh, we can act with precision. Earlier we had a one-size-fits-all basically run away until we can learn more but now we've learned more uh, and so a really customized way that an individual person can assess if I choose X, Y, or Z, um, what, is, what is the risk that I'm taking on personally for my personal health? And then what risks might I open the door for, for me to impact my community if I were to get sick? Um, and so, you know, I, that was that had been in my head. That actually was in my head from the very beginning. I was just brainstorming, like, what might it look like down the road. Uh, And so having this customized way to interact, um, only recently do I feel like I've been able to generate uh, a rough draft of what that might look like.
1: There are a lot of people trying to make decisions. They're trying to make decisions on how I should run my business, whether I should take my children to the park where there might be other kids playing, whether I should go to church or should a church be open. And they're having to decipher a lot of data. You know, you'll see stuff from DHEC come down, CDC come down, your local sheriff's departments, all these data points that we're seeing. How do you talk to your patients about deciphering all this chart junk of data that's being flooded to us to make a good decision for themselves and their families. How do you ta- na- help navigate your patients through that very complicated discussion?
0: So, we are having to get our head around living with some level of risk. Hmm. Okay. Because this is, problem is not going away. And, and that's the sobering reality. And so, it's just like getting on the interstate you know, you take a little bit of risk if you get on the interstate. And so you wear your seatbelt and who you are, maybe you maybe you feel really confident and you go down the fast lane and maybe you, maybe you only drive at certain times of the day when there's less traffic. But the reality is this COVID thing is not going away uh, right now. People are ready to do something with their life. So we're going to have to live, we're going to have to make decisions under this, in this setting of risk. Uh, and we are not yet uh, back to new normal. Uh, I also think when we opt, when we, we try to do the best with the information that we have, and we have to acknowledge that that information is incomplete Mm. and it's continuing to emerge. And I'll, I'll, I'll I'll highlight the incompleteness because it impacts children. Um, So I think any single individual should understand their individual risk for critical illness. Mm. Okay. So, as an individual, I need to know where do I fall in risk as we currently understand risk. So, really simple: if you're uh, over age seventy, your your risk of critical illness really starts to go up compared to the rest of society. If you're under ten years old, your risk of serious illness is incredibly low. So. You need to know where you stand. And then we also know that there are uh, very specific to this virus. There's, um, uh, there are diseases that pe- some people have that increase their risk a little bit. And, and some are more important than others. And in, in this virus, it is cardiovascular disease with hypertension, particularly diabetes and obesity. Hmm. And it, there's reasons why that's the case, but it is absolutely a major risk factor. So any individual needs to understand their risk. And then we also need to know what's happening in my community. How likely am I to bump into somebody that might be carrying this virus? And so we call that a disease burden. And if the disease burden is low in my community, you know, I can feel like I'm operating with less general risk because there's less of this around me. And so that really needs to help govern. And that's dynamic. uh, And and that's dynamic, uh, you know, maybe shifting within a two, one to three week time frame, depending on what's going on. So, individual risk and then community risk; those are the those are the kind of things to consider. And then, what are the choices that uh, stepwise increase my risk for getting this Ill- disease or this virus? And what are the things that reduce my risk? Um, so that's the framework. Um, taking doing the best with information that we have now that we did not have previously. So, if you take a church, because I know you're very interested in a church setting, so many of um, our, you know, our parishioners who um, their church family is so important to their life, uh, there's no doubt, at least in my church, that the older demographic uh, in my church, uh, their church family is precious.
1: Yes, very precious.
0: This has been a, a crazy time uh, for that age demographic in so many ways, but be, but to feel like they've been cut off uh, to a large degree from their church family has been a very painful um, thing to deal with. So how can, how can those people come back? And uh, I've had these conversations with my pastor throughout the whole time. And so one of the things that we've been talking about, as I said, you know, maybe you should have a, service only for that group, you know? So in in my church, we have, we only have one service, um, on Sunday and many churches for reasons have two services, one early, one later. And I said, I said, you know, Rusty, what about having, um, but because one of the problems is, is popular how many people you have in a place at any one time. So if you can spread out, um, spread people out, then the people that are present are, are less at a risk to each other. And I'm saying, well, maybe we should have a, a service for 65 and up. Interesting. Uh, it'll be a smaller group. They can spread out. Um, but from a church setting, uh, well, br- this virus is spread through our breath. And, and I, I, you know, I was standing somewhere um, recently where somebody was smoking, um, you know, several feet away from me. Um, and I could smell the smoke. Okay, the, the smoke that I smelled was from their breath. And so that's, that is how much this kind of distributes. So we want to control how much breath I might be exposed to from anybody else around me. Um, so it's, it's a, a factor of time is a part of that story. If, you breathe, if I give you an opportunity to breathe on me a hundred times because we were together for an hour, versus 30 times that I can manage my, I can manage that time and reduce my exposure uh, or, or we can get further away from each other in our separation um, so we've talked about having shorter services and creating opportunities to be spread out and services for special groups um, to make that work one of the really um, bizarre things about this virus and church is that singing seems to really project um, more of this virus into the air. Now, I don't know that we can say it exactly the way I said it, but the observation that people have become super spreaders in church environments, uh, there's no doubt that we're seeing some really tragic things happen uh, from people in church uh, and singing has a lot to do with it, where one person can really in affect a lot of people around them, and that and that you know that that's hard on church. You know, uh, making a joyful noise together is a part of celebrating, it's a part of worship, um, and it's just part of the, our normal activities. And so, you know, I think unfortunately, corporate singing is probably not um, the thing to do right now. Um, you don't want to hear me sing anyway, <laughs> right. but if we had you know, a single person, you know, singing, that would be a way to enjoy music. Um, so individual groups, individual settings, what can you do to manage those risks? So if we, if we considered a, a, a service uh, where we could really spread people out or people who have been generally otherwise very diligent about staying home and protecting themselves, I see that as a potential opportunity. I'm not ready to fully endorse it because I'm still thinking it through. Um, and on the other hand, young families with young children, you know, they're probably that's tough. A, they're not um, vulnerable to getting critically ill. Uh, one of the problems with this, this observing young people and, and children is that it is not zero, right? If it was zero risk, well, this would be an easy decision, you know, but you hear about some of these cases of uh, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. And, uh, you know, what if that's your kid, right? It, it's, if you play the numbers, it, it doesn't make any sense to let that bother you because the numbers are so low. But as a mother or a father, um, you say, well, even though that's very unlikely to happen, maybe I don't want to take that risk. Uh, what I hear Dr. Swan say and everybody else says we don't have all the information. Um, so, to that note, you know, the, from a child standpoint, um, a lot of evidence thus far um, seemed to say that children are less likely to catch the virus. Uh, and then those that did catch the virus, usually it's what we call vertical transmission. They got it from a, a, an adult family member. So it came down this way. They didn't catch it from a peer. So maybe children are less likely to get it, um, if they get sick, the observation has been that they're not likely to get very, very sick. Um, and the last thing is that they're also not likely to give it to peers. So that makes you feel pretty positive about, you know, what what we might find for our kids, particularly considering going back to school. But the flip side of that story is, well, at least in the United States, maybe our data is heavily skewed uh, because, we took everybody out of school, and very few kids have been in camp settings, and so they've been so distant anyway. Who else could they get sick from other than a, a family member? Right. Uh, and and there's a lot of I've had a there's a, a family in Clemson where the mother got sick, so we so she was tested and found positive. The father started to get sick. He was tested. He got positive, and their kids got sick, and there was no doubt they had the virus. And they didn't want to put them through jacking a Q-tip up their nose so they didn't get tested. And so those kids, there's no doubt they had it, but they're not going to show up in the data. Um, So that just goes to show you how, you know, data doesn't tell uh, the whole whole story. And, you know, some people are afraid of what we're going to find when we go back to school is all of a sudden we're going to find out pretty quickly. You know what happens this, this being rushed back to in-person school is a, is a giant experiment and it might work out really well for us or we might find oh, that was a bad idea I know a lot of people are struggling with that uncertainty um, so anyway that's
1: a great I'm rambling no that's great and um, I wanted to point out real quick is uh, our church at Boulevard Baptist Church which is almost like a sister church to Clemson First Baptist. Um, you know, we have we actually share someone, uh, Doctor Johnny McKinney, who used to be our pastor, and now attends and is a member there. Um, we have really talked, you know, with other similar churches and how we're approaching things. And we started off with, okay, the numbers are down in March, so we're going to project to open on June twenty eighth, and we're going to plan. And plan and plan. We reopen. And the day that we reopen, we find out that someone in our uh, children's child care facility that we're getting ready to reopen to had COVID. And so we made the decision the next day to shut everything back down, especially given the fact that the numbers were 16-fold compared to where we were in March when we made that decision. And so many of our church members are like, well, I— we want personal we want to have the personal choice if we want to congregate and so we're in this balance you know is it a personal decision is it a church decision how do you manage that and i think right now we don't know how to manage that i think there's not enough data to help us understand what is the best decision but i do think what you provided is a framework to start thinking ahead in making those decisions and those plans as you start envisioning what reopening might look like down the road. Definitely. So
0: I had this conversation last week with my, with my pastor. And I think you want to think about community burden. And, And right now in Clemson, um, or at least the last couple of weeks, the community burden has been very high. Um, and it's been a challenge for my pastor because our church has, has not had an in-person service in the sanctuary since the beginning of this. Uh, And, and other churches in the community and in the surrounding areas uh, have opened back up and some of them have had just straight up traditional services and operating like normal. Um, And so we've had, you know, members of our church say, well, you know, other places are doing it, you know, why shouldn't we do it? And, and, uh, they always put it, put it back on my shoulders and a couple other <laughs> physician colleagues that, uh, go to church with us. But what I was, what I told my pastor was that, uh, if there's a moderate disease activity, um, it might be practical for them to open the church, but be very, um, deliberate about risk settings and say, we do not encourage our 70 and up 65 and up whatever the number we draw the line at to come to this service because this is going to be a more largely attended. So we've created a separate service where we can spread that demographic out. Um, uh, And, but basically go through, what is the church doing to reduce um, the, the potential for spread? and then say, you know, you're welcome to come. This is what we're doing, but we want you to make this decision based off your individual risks. Um, Because we've had the doors closed and they probably don't have to be closed to all. Hmm. Um, And I think if we are very transparent about uh, the way we view risks and can talk about the things that we're doing, then any individual, Um, you know, a member of our church can say, okay, if I go to worship today, this is the setting I will find. um, And I think I'm comfortable with that. Or somebody else might say, you know, I'm okay watching it online. That's worked out pretty well for me. Um, I think I'll do that. One of the things that our church did was they started having um, Wednesday night services outdoor in the parking lot (laughs) where,
1: and Smart. had the
0: benefit of just a breeze to dissipate uh, some of this um, threat. And that was, uh, re- that went really well. People were so happy to just be together, even though it was spaced out. It's just a testimony to how much people f- need the connection from their church family. Um, so trying to find a way to connect people, uh, I-, I feel the pain of all the pastors. Um, but it's a real risk if you're if you're just kind of doing it um, blindly and not paying attention to the these risks um, i think that's a little bit irresponsible Uh, but i do think that ultimately you present the opportunity to the to the individual uh, and you can make your recommendations uh, but ultimately, let the let the individual decide. So that's something that I've been working through with with my pastor and um, the group that I'm involved at the church. And again, you're you're seeing the rough draft of my thoughts and um, evolving. I also want to say that the the diagram that I shared with you, um, in part, uh, is my own uh, because I started thinking that way in the very beginning. But it's not so original. That other people have not also thought of similar things. So I've started to see a little bit of that type of stuff out there, trying to diagram individual risk with community risk and how you might make decisions. Uh, so I don't want to take um, full credit for that.
1: Dr. Ted Swan, Cub Brother, Clemson graduate, good community guy, friend. Thank you for your time. Appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you. And uh hope you have a good rest of the day. Thank you.
0: You're welcome, Bobby. Anytime. We could talk forever. You know, it. have a great day.
1: Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Intersection is powered by Touchpoint Media Network, a podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health.